Well, I'll tell you, we've had a fantastic weekend. I feel like I have a thousand new friends, and uh, here in San Francisco, your wonderful pastor, Henry, the staff, uh, his sweet wife, Cindy, and we got to meet their twin boys, too. We had got to meet them at dinner the other night. What a cool... And I always ask him every morning, I did this yesterday, and I did it again, how'd the boys sleep last night? <laughs> and... Uh, he told, last, yesterday, he said, oh, they slept really well. This morning, uh, kind of kept him up a little bit. We know what that's like. Our boys are 30 years old now, and one of them is married, and the other one we're trying to get married. So, um, but uh, um, we're so grateful. We had just a, a terrific time at the conference this weekend called The Meeting of Heart for God. And um, if you were there, uh, thank you for coming. If you weren't, I imagine it's recorded. You can probably get copies of that um, through the audio or online here for the church. Well, this morning we have an issue that we want to talk about, and Pastor Tam has already mentioned it to you, is God punishing me? I wonder if you've ever thought that before. Is God punishing me? Take your Bible, would you please? Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. We want to take a look at verses 7 through 11. If we had more time... We look at the broader chapter. We don't. So we're going to have to take an excerpt out of it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. And follow along as I read. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. All discipline... For the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The title of the message today really comes out of years and years of counseling. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat across the table or across the desk from someone who has come to me for counseling and after pouring out their life and all that's going on in their life and the difficulties and the struggles and the losses that they've incurred and the pain and the suffering that has gone on there, oftentimes with tears rolling down their cheeks, they will look at me and ask the question, I want to know, is God punishing me? And it's really a fair question. And maybe it's a question that you've asked in your past with some of the things that have gone on in your own personal life. You know, is God punishing me? Is that the reason why I'm going through the difficulties that I'm going through? Or the hardships that I'm having to endure? Or is that the reason that I have lost the people that I have lost? Why is all of this going on? And why is this happening to me? That's a critical question. I think it's a vital question 
Before we're done today, I want to be able to answer that with clarity from the Word of God. I want you to be able to understand in your own heart and mind what the Word of God says about your specific struggle in life. Now, in order to help you to understand this, I'm going to lay out four basic principles. And if you have a pen and paper and you want to write these down, at some particular point, I guarantee you're going to need these. Or there's going to be somebody in your life that will need these eventually. But before I get to those four things, I want to tell you a little story. Back about six or seven years ago, um, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to Germany. In fact, oftentimes she will go with me uh, on this particular trip, actually. She was not with me at that time. I went on my own, and um, I, I fly into Switzerland, usually do a conference for pastors and their wives there in Switzerland, and then fly from there to Germany and do another conference in Germany. And this particular time, we were in Cologne, Germany. And there were about 200 pastors and their wives that came from all over Germany, some from France and so on, to this particular conference. And it was a training conference in biblical counseling. And it went all day long. And it went on for five days in a row, all day long. So we were just training pastors and training pastors. On the very first day of that conference, um, I had spoken all day. And I had a, there was another man that traveled with me who was a cohort of mine, and he did part of the teaching. I did part of the teaching and had a translator. He's a graduate of the Master Seminary. He actually grew up in Switzerland, spoke German fluently. Um, and I love the fact that he was, uh, he, he understood English well enough to be a simultaneous translator. In other words, I could talk just like I'm talking with you, and he would just translate along in German just as fluently as I'm talking with you, and I don't have to hesitate or anything like that. So that makes preaching a lot easier. And his name was Martin Manton. Martin, if you understood or met him, he's a tall guy, bald head. Uh, actually, he spent his high school days in America. That's where he learned to speak English, and he actually played American football. Imagine that. So he was translating along with me, and I had the last address of the day. It was around 7.30 in the evening, I was supposed to speak for an hour, and that was the last address of the day, and we were spent, send everybody home or to their hotel rooms or wherever they were staying. And so I spoke for that entire hour, and at the conclusion, I closed in prayer, and um, we dismissed everybody, and they started to leave. And while Martin and I were wrapping up our notes up in front, I could see in my peripheral vision a woman making her way down the aisle of the church. She was an elderly woman, probably in her mid-70s. She had a long coat on. She had a scarf tied around her head, and she was kind of short. And one of the first things I saw in my eyes were how swollen her ankles were, which suggested possible um, some kind of heart difficulty. And she came up and she grabbed my translator by the arm and she po pointed a finger at me and I go, oh boy. And she said something to Martin and Martin turned to me and said, 
this woman wants to talk with you. Well, I have been teaching all day long, and I'm not responsible for anything I say after 9 o'clock in the evening. (laughs) All right? And so I'm ready to say to her, listen, you come back tomorrow, and I am more than willing to sit down and talk with you. But before I could get that out, Martin says to me, and by the way, she wants to tell you something she has never, ever told anybody her entire life. (sighs) When a 75-year-old woman says that to me, okay, she's got my attention. I'm going, okay, well, let's go over off to the side here. So we went off to the side. We found three chairs. We sat down. I had prayer with her, and I said, tell me what's on your heart. What do you need to share? And she launched into her life story. And she talked about the fact how she was, um, she grew up in Russia, Central Russia, actually. Her father was a pastor. Now, if you remember anything about your Russian history, if you've studied that at all, you know that back in the 1700s, Peter III ruled Russia until he was eventually assassinated. And after that, Catherine or Catherine the Great ended up, his wife, taking over rule of Russia, and she ruled Russia for 34 years. During that particular time, the Russian economy was horrible. And so Catherine the Great actually went to Germany. And at that time, in the mid-1700s, the Germans were the best farmers in the world. And she basically said to the German farmers, if you'll come to Russia, teach the Russian farmers to farm the way you farm, then one thing that Russia had that Germany didn't have was Lots of land. We'll give you huge plots of land, and you can have them in, perpetu- in perpetuity, you know, into the future for you and your family. So thousands, tens of thousands of farmers left Germany and went to Russia in the mid-1700s. And even to this day, if you were to go to Russia, there are conclaves of German settlements all over Russia to this day, where in some cases they speak part German, they speak part Russian, um, and... In fact, my wife and I were just in Samara just a couple of years ago, and we ran into people there that were descendants of some of those immigrants to Russia. Well, this gal was raised in a German-Russian family. Her father was a pastor of a, of a church, and by the course, by the time that she was born communists had already taken over. All those farmers had lost their land. Uh, It all went to the government at that particular time. And so her father actually pastored a church around three or 400 people. It was an illegal church in Russia. And it met out in the woods. And she grew up in that particular church. And she told me as she became a teenager... In that church, she met a young man that came to the church. She fell in love with this young man. This young man professed that he loved her. She made a very tragic and very sinful mistake and spent one evening with that young man. And in that one experience, she got pregnant. And of course, that brought huge shame 
upon her, upon her family, upon her father and his ministry, and, and everybody in town eventually heard about it. And of course, since they were believers, abortion was not an option. But they didn't know quite what to do with her now that she was pregnant. And so her uncle came along and suggested a plan. He said, listen, I can get her a job in another town. She can go there, make her own living until that baby is ready to be born, give birth to the baby, give it out for adoption, and that way, a way to save face and shame is to give that baby up and then come back and she can live with us. She hated this plan. But they didn't have any other options, especially because of the economy there in Russia. And she described for me the day that they took her down to the train station to get on the train. She was angry at her uncle. She was angry at her father and her mother And she absolutely refused to say goodbye to any of them. And in anger and tears, she got on that train and left. And that was the last time she ever saw them. This train ride was a day and a half journey clear up to the edge of Siberia in the north. When she finally arrived at the town where her uncle had gotten her this job, she got off the train, met the person she was going to meet. They took her out to the job, and to her surprise, it was a job at a prison camp where she was supposed to cook for over 500 men in that prison camp, two meals every day, and she was the only cook. And then she began to describe to me how every day as a young gal, sometimes repeatedly several times a day, she was the only woman in that work camp. She was raped by the guards and she was raped by the inmates of that particular prison. And she looked at me with the tears rolling down her face. One day, nine months later, the baby finally came. She was walking into town in the middle of winter. There was snow everywhere. She was by herself. She had to go into town to get things for the kitchen at the work camp. The baby decided to come, and she described for me how she sat down in the snow delivered her own baby and you must understand her mindset at this time this baby was the cause of all of her problems and after she delivered her baby she described for me how she took her baby and threw it out over the ice and the tears just rolled down her face I looked at her, I looked at my big translator and there were tears in his eyes. There were tears in my eyes. She said, I killed my baby with my own hands. I killed my baby. 
Through a set of circumstances, she was eventually able to get away from that particular work camp and make it to East Germany. This is where East and West Germany was still divided. She was able to get a job, and there, in this new job, she met another guy. This time, they fell in love. This time, she got married. Not long after she got married, she got pregnant again, and as soon as her new husband found out that she was pregnant, he left her, and she never saw him again. Now she's left with this baby. She gives birth to a little girl, and for the next 18, 19 years, she raises her daughter working in East Germany. Her daughter grows up, becomes a late teenager, early 20s, meets a young man, falls in love. They get married not long after they're pregnant. Uh, or not long after they got married, she gets pregnant and her daughter gives birth to a little girl. And two months after that little girl was born, her daughter and son-in-law were in a terrible car accident and both of them were killed and her granddaughter was horribly maimed. And now she's left with her granddaughter to raise her. And so for the next 18, 19 years, she raises her granddaughter. In the meantime, the wall between East and West Germany comes down. Everybody in East Germany on the communist side were very, very poor. Everybody in West Germany was viewed as very wealthy people. And so all the East Germans flooded into West Germany. And she was one of them. She located in Cologne, Germany not just a few blocks from the church where I was at. And her daughter began, her granddaughter began attending that church. And through that experience, her granddaughter came to Jesus Christ, accepted him as Lord and Savior of her life. And she started going home and saying to Grandma, Grandma, you got to come to church with me. Not interested in this. Not interested at all in that. Come on, Grandma. you got No, not interested at all. Don't want to have anything to do with church. Don't want to have anything to do with Christians. I gave up on that a long time ago. Don't talk to me about it. Come on, Grandma. you got to go to church. Granddaughter was really persistent. Finally, finally, Grandma said, okay, I'm willing to go to church with you but I'm only going to go once. And after that, I don't want you to ever ask me to do this ever again. I'm not interested in church. I'm not interested in Christians. And I'm not interested in God. Grandma went to church with her granddaughter. And in that one event, God melted her hard heart. And she came to Christ. That was just about four or five months before we showed up. And now we're in her church talking about how the Bible applies to really practical issues of life and our deepest struggles. And the thing that bothers her the most, at the end of her whole story, she's sitting there in that chair with tears running down her face and she looks at me with all sincerity and asks in her broken German-Russian accent, is God punishing me? That's a great question. 
I saw how she had a little Bible. I said, I want you to grab your Bible. So I want you to put a marker in Hebrews chapter 12 here for a moment. We're going to come back there. I want you to go over to Romans chapter 8. I asked her to turn over to Romans chapter 8. She couldn't find Romans in her Bible, so my translator helped her find it there in her little German Bible. And I said to her, I want you to read for me out loud verse 1. And she did in her broken German-Russian accent. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. She read it and she looked at me and I said, do you know who wrote that? She said, no. I said, a man by the name of Paul. Do you know who Paul is? She says, no. I said, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but before he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he participated in the murder of Christians. In other words, a murderer is writing these words. I want you to read it again. And she looked at me and she looked down at her Bible and she looked at me and she looked down at her Bible and she said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And she looked at me again and now the tears welled up again. And I said, you understand what this means, don't you? When you are now found in Christ, all the sins that you have been committed is covered by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And she sat there and looked me in the eye with the tears, and she's shaking her head. She understands it's coming through the translator, Martin, there, but she understands exactly what I'm saying. So I explain the whole verse to her, and then I say to her at the end, I say, listen, you need to memorize this verse and come back tomorrow and quote it for me and explain to me what this means in relationship to your, to your life. Are you willing to do that? Mm-hmm. She said, yeah. So we had prayer with her. By the way, it had been raining the whole day that day. She had walked several blocks in the rain to get to those meetings. So we made sure she had a ride home that night, especially because of the potential congestive heart failure that she could have had but the next morning I saw Martin at the church I said Martin have you seen our lady yet and just about that time she comes bursting through the front doors of the church moving just about as fast as a 75 year old woman can move with the biggest toothless grin you ever saw (laughs) like this and I said to Martin, hey, ask her to quote the verse. She looked, he looked at me and he said, she already did. I, How'd she do? She did it perfectly. Good. Now, have her explain what does that verse mean in relationship to her life? And she looked at me and again tears came into her life and she, her eyes and she said to me, for the past 50 years, I have carried this load of guilt and it's gone. It's gone. And I looked at her. She had tears in her eyes. I had tears in my eyes. The translator had tears in his eyes. It's all gone. I said, why? Why is it gone? She says, well, because of Jesus Christ, he took it 
He did it. I, I, there's no condemnation. It, he took all of my condemnation. That's it. Yes. That's it. That's it. Wow. Now let's go back to Hebrews 12. There's four things I want you to understand here. We want to answer the question for you, is God punishing me? Take a look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now let me translate this in the John Street translation just for a moment here. Basically, you could take the Greek here and say, we are to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating us as his sons. You say, really? You mean all hardship? Yes, all hardship. No matter what it may be, absolutely, no matter what it may be, we are to endure all hardships the difficult ones as well as the minor ones, whatever the case may be, we are to endure all hardships as God's discipline. He's treating us as sons. So number one, here's the first principle. I must view hardship as God's discipline in my life. I must view hardship as God's discipline in my life. I wonder if you have that kind of a view of hardship. I wonder whether or not you really understand what God is attempting to do in your life. You have to, in a sense, step away from your problems, put on theological glasses, and take a look at your problems from God's point of view. That's really critical. Because this is exactly the way in which God works. Now put a marker here for a moment. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. You understand this particular passage is a passage where God explains why he takes the children of Israel through the wilderness experience and all the difficulties and sufferings of that wilderness experience. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse says this. He says, You shall remember all the way which your Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, notice this. God is telling the people of Israel after taking them through the 40 years of wilderness experience in their lives, he's doing this to humble them, but he's also doing it in order to test them to know what was in their heart. Now, listen, think about this. God was not testing them so that he could know what was in their hearts. Why? Because God is omniscient. He already knew what was in their hearts. He was not testing them so that he could know what was in their hearts. He already knew what was there. 
Well, why was he testing them? He was testing them so that they would know what's in their hearts. That's why he took them through that particular wilderness experience. He was testing them so that they would know what was in the depths of their heart. They thought they know their hearts. That's why they were so prideful. That's why they needed to be humbled. That's exactly the way you and I are. We think we know our hearts, but we really don't know our hearts until the pressure is turned up in our life, until we're going through real hardship and difficulty, and all of a sudden our true heart then comes to the surface, and we end up saying things to our wife or our husband or our children that we never, ever thought we'd ever say, I hate you. All of a sudden, these things come out. Why? Because we didn't believe it was in our hearts, but it was deeply, deeply embedded there, and God knew it was in our hearts. All of those things, when the pressure is turned up, it's all of those things that come out. If you go to Detroit and you go to the car museums there, they have examples of how they test pistons in cars, and they'll take a piston and they'll put it under a hundred times more pressure than it would ever experience in a normal car engine. And all of a sudden, you can begin to see all the fissures occur in that metal because they want to know exactly where that metal is in terms of its weakness and all the impurities that are in the metal that they use for the pistons of those car engines. Why do they do that? Because they really want to know where that car is going to break down. There is a sense in which God takes our hearts and puts it in a pressure chamber and turns up the pressure and all of the wicked, vile, evil things that are a part of our heart then all of a sudden start to come out. All the fissures start to occur and all of a sudden we realize things about ourselves that we never knew at all existed. Why? Because God is the one who brought this about. Sometimes I'll go to restaurants and I order hot tea. I like hot tea. Now, I'm not into all these flavored teas. And anytime they bring out this box of all these flavored teas, I explain to the waitress how unpatriotic she is. <laughs> because there was no flavored tea in the Boston Harbor. None of that was there. I'm not interested in no flavor. I just want just black tea. That's all I want. Just black tea. Just give me black tea. Now, how do, how do I know? There's all kinds of manufacturers of different kinds of black teas. How do I know whether or not that's any good? I, I look at it. I can smell it. I don't, I don't know whether it's any good until I take that tea bat and put it in hot water. That's what God does with your heart. He takes your heart and puts it into hot water. And all of a sudden, it begins to seep. And it's the stuff that comes out in it seeping that all of a sudden, we're not really fond of. We don't like what's there. We don't, that's not me. Oh, yes, that is you. That's you in your truest form. God took the people of Israel through the wilderness experience. He tested them and turned up the pressure in order to show them their own hearts. They thought they knew their hearts. But they didn't know their hearts. So when God turns up the pressure in your life financially, when God turns up the pressure 
with marital difficulties and conflicts and disagreements, when God turns up the pressure with health issues, when God turns up the pressure with children issues or parent issues, all of a sudden these issues start to come out of our heart and we begin to see ourselves for who we really are. Why does he do that? Look at verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You must understand at this particular point that when he takes you to the end of yourself, he's showing you his sufficiency. This is where we fundamentally need. Christ. Man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Verse 4, your clothing didn't wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. You can see this. This is what God does. Our God is a tester of hearts. Go to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3. Proverbs 17, 3. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Our God is preoccupied with testing our hearts Not so that he can know what's in our hearts. He tests us so that you can know what's in your heart. That's really critical. Go back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 67. Psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Verse 68, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. You mean in the midst of affliction that verse 67 has just said? Yes, even though God is afflicting us, he is still good. Look at verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. When you take this apart in the Hebrew, the was, past tense there in the English, could be actually a present tense. It was good for me that I am afflicted. I'm presently going through affliction. Verse 73, your hands made me. By the way, that's Hebrew past tense. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Now he changes tense. That's Hebrew imperfect. That means he continues to fashion us. So he made us in the past, but he continues to fashion us in the present. Then verse 75. I talked about this this weekend. Fashion your seatbelts, put your crash helmets on. Verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We have a tendency to think that God is being unfaithful when he afflicts us. No, no, no. God is being faithful when he afflicts us, that we may learn his decrees, that we may follow his statutes. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished 
in my afflictions. I had to learn how to cling to your word. And if that had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. So our God is a God who is preoccupied with testing our hearts so that we can know our hearts so that we can be sanctified and be more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's the way our God works. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. So number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. That's number one. Now, let's go to number two. Look at verse eight and nine. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? All right, number one, we said I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, listen, my, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as my loving father. When God brings hardship into my life, he is acting as my loving father. That's really critical. Why? Because Proverbs makes it very, very clear that if a father does not discipline his son, he hates him. In other words, he's not interested in that son's long-term welfare. But God is very interested in our long-term welfare. God is very interested long-term in us being holy people and walking in this world in holiness. Therefore, he will bring about discipline because he loves us. He will take us through hardship and personal wilderness experiences because he loves us. That's the reason why. So, number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as my loving father. You say, okay, I understand up to this particular point exactly what you're talking about. You still haven't answered the question, is God punishing me? Well, that brings me to number three. Take a look at verse 10. For they, speaking of human fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Sometimes, as human fathers, we fail. We don't always do what is best for our children. But God, who is absolutely perfect in everything that he does, he's also omniscient in everything he does. He's omnipotent in everything he does. He's omnipresent in everything that's a part of our life. If God is like that, then everything he does is perfectly, ideally designed for us. Whereas human fathers fail, so verse 10 says, For they, human fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, that is God the Father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. So number one, we said I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, this discipline, listen, this discipline is not punitive. It is corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. You say, how can you say that? 
Well, it fits in with the entire argument of the book of Hebrews. If we were paying for our sins, if God was truly punishing us to cause us to pay for our sins, then Jesus Christ, death on the cross as a payment for sin didn't work. Didn't work. His atonement was insufficient. And we all become Roman Catholics. Because now we have to pray the rosary. Now we have to say so many Hail Marys. Now we need to add our works to what Jesus has already done in order to have a complete sanctification take place so that we can be made holy. And that's not at all what the Bible teaches. You go back to Hebrews chapter 10. What does Hebrews chapter 10 say? It's very, very clear. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ. What is this? Once for all. Do you see that? In other words, because of Christ's sacrifice, he paid for our sins, past, present, future. There's no more payment for sin ever needed at all. He paid once for all. Look at verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you, you begin to get this sense that there was one all-sufficient all covering sacrifice for all of your sins, past, present, and future, if you are paying for your sins, if you are being punished for your sins, then Christ's death didn't work. Didn't work. It was insufficient. It fell short. And you have to add your own suffering to Christ's sufferings in order for God, for you to be accepted before God is holy. But that's not true. Christ's sacrifice was all sufficient. It covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. We ought to be excited about that. We don't add any of our suffering. We don't add any of our pain or our hurt to what already Jesus Christ has done. You say, okay, well then, then why do I have to go through what I'm going through? Listen, verse 10, Hebrews 12, 10 is very clear. So that you will be more holy. You're not paying for sin at all. Is God punishing you? No. Is he correcting you? Yes. For the purpose of holiness, you're not paying for anything, nothing at all. So number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, this discipline is not punitive. It's corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. You say, okay, if all of that is true, if that is true, then how do I know whether or not it's worked? How do I know? Well, that brings us to verse 11. Verse 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, but to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields 
the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So number one, I must view all hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, this discipline is not punitive. It's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. And number four, I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. My heart will no longer be fighting God. It'll no longer be anxious, worrisome, full of despair or depression. My heart, all of that is gone. I realize what God is doing. I accept that. And I want to be made holy. I want to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, probably America's greatest theologian, while he was the the president of the college in New Jersey, which later on became Princeton University, From a human standpoint, Jonathan died prematurely, March 22nd, 1758, from a smallpox inoculation. He left behind a grieving family and a grieving widow. And upon his death, his grieving widow, Sarah Pierpont Edwards, wrote to their daughter. And she said this to her. After such a great loss, they had such a great marriage that enjoyed the ministry together for several years. God had blessed Jonathan's ministry, but Sarah dearly loved her husband, and now he was gone. She writes to their daughter, and listen to what she says. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a black cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. The Lord has done it, but my God lives and he has my heart. We are all given to God. Can you say that? After God has just struck you across the back with his rod, can you turn around and kiss the rod? Sarah, in her grief, understood and trusted the goodness of God, even in her great loss. Charles Spurgeon has said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws, us, throws me against the rock of ages. That's it. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Can you turn around and do that after you have gone through that difficulty, realizing that God is not taking you through that difficulty in order for you to pay for your sins, which calls into question the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but rather he takes you through that difficulty in order for you to be more like his son, Jesus Christ, to be made more holy. You're not paying for anything. Christ paid for everything. He's making you more like Christ. You can turn around and kiss that rod that just beat you across the back. Wow. 
What a perspective about life. Number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as my loving heavenly father. Number three, this discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. And number four, I'll know when this hardship has done its job because you understand my heart will be at peace. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Lord, you are so good, you are so wise, you are so omniscient. You know exactly what we need. The hardships and difficulties that we encounter in this life are specifically designed for us. Help us. Help us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen.